Hey everyone, Chris Hewitt here, just jumping in before you listen to the show to let you know a couple of things. One, I'm uploading this on Friday, February 4th. Now, Fridays, of course, are usually the day that the regular Empire podcast gets uploaded in all its glory, but that is not happening today. Why? Well, simply because episode 500, yes, 500 of the Empire podcast is being recorded tomorrow in an epic live show at King's Place in London, which, by the way, you can still see online via a streaming pass if you fancy, or you can wait for the edited show to come out on Monday. But if you do want to see it live and you can't get there in the flesh, sold out, of course, but if you have got a ticket and you want to see it live, then you can pick up a streaming pass right now, kingsplace.co.uk. Right, enough of the shameless plugin. Episode 500 is happening, so there is no podcast today. So instead, I'm bringing you an extended Donnie Yen interview special, which will be up soon. And <laughs> I can't quite believe this is happening. An actual episode of The Ranking live and in the wild. Yes, The Ranking hasn't exactly been a regular addition to the Empire podcast schedules, but I promise you folks... That is mostly going to change from now on. You can expect them on the regular. And we're going to start off with a cracker, an absolute cracker, as four members of Team Empire discuss the work of Stanley Kubrick. And in a way, actually, the fact that there was almost a two-year gap, I think, between the last episode of the ranking and Kubrick is quite apt, really. I think Stanley would approve. Anyway, I'm not on this one. This one is hosted by Ian Freer. At that point, Ian Freer didn't have a microphone, so that explains why he sounds a little bit echoey. Uh, but he's also joined by Alex Godfrey, Neil Alcock, and Beth Webb. It is a cracking episode, so here you go. A little gift to you today to make up for the absence of episode 500, The Ranking. Stanley Kubrick, do please enjoy. So guys, uh, Chris Stewart has left Empire and gone to be a caretaker of a hotel in the middle of the mountains. He's left us to talk about the greatest Stanley Kubrick movies. Let's start with how we got into Kubrick. Beth, with you, how did you kind of first discover Kubrick? I like how you've like purposely come to you. I'm going to make a guess and say the youngest person on this podcast to come to you first with the Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> because I obviously did not grow up immediately, like with an immediate relationship with Kubrick. So I grew up with like pop culture and watched, you know, train spotting before I saw A Clockwork Orange. I saw Treehouse of Horror and like Deep Space Homer before I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I, I only really knew about Kubrick through like parody and pastiche and then watched A Clockwork Orange in film studies when I was 17 and walked out because <laughs> I'd never seen something so garish and caricature and, and this kind of pantomime approach to violence, especially violence towards women. And I just walked clean out of there. Like I couldn't handle it. So uh, it's been bittersweet, um, my journey with Kubrick. And then obviously as I've grown up and grown more into film, I've obviously realized that there probably wouldn't be a lot of the films that I love without Kubrick. Did you watch, did you watch Clockwork Orange again, by the way? Yes, I did. I did. I did years later. I talked myself into it again. Did you walk out again? I didn't walk out. I talked myself into it and I sat down and I watched it. And you know, it's not as bad. It's just, you know, when you're younger, you're a teenager, you haven't really 
have that experience of watching sexual violence on screen very much and then you see it in this way that at the time as I'm sure a lot of people saw with A Clock of Courage it was so far removed from reality and it looked like it was sort of disassociating with a very serious subject and it looked like it's also not a very easy intro to Kubrick is it it's, it's a baptism of fire as far as Kubrick's concerned absolutely it was shown to me as, as part of a, a module called shocking cinema so I think you know it was meant to be provocative <laughs> in that respect talk about plunging in the deep end and then obviously you come back to it and you realize that there's so much more in the messaging here and the framing and, and the intentional framing of sexual violence um that you do you know you start to think okay 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 i can i can see why that's the case obviously we'll get into the relationship of kubrick and women later on i'm looking forward to it um <laughs> but yeah so that was me but yeah it was it was initially parody and pastiche and treehouse of horror and homer simpson eating potato chips in a in a space was me and Kubrick initially. Oh, Alex, what about you? When did you first meet Mr. Stanley? I saw this. I am slightly older than you, Beth, and I saw The Shining on TV. But it feels like I was way, way too young. But that's sort of the story of my life with cinema, really. I saw things years and years before I should have done. And I, I don't know when it was, but I feel like I was literally seven or eight, and. I don't remember being scared by it, but I remember being absolutely fascinated by it. It just seemed like beyond cinema. There was just something else about it. You know, it felt bigger than films and and not in a blockbuster sense, not like in a Michael Bay way. It's just the design of every single frame and every single set and the sound design and the music and the performances, everything was just like turned up and it didn't feel grounded, but it didn't feel sort of falsely theatrical. My obsession grew from there really over the years. And I I became almost as obsessed with Kubrick as, as he was with everything he made. So I'm a little bit older than Alex, and like everything in my life, I first discovered Stanley Kubrick through Steven Spielberg. Uh, Douglas Trumbull was the visual effects supervisor on Close Encounters, and wow. Spielberg chose him because of his work in 2001, so I had to look this film up 2001. I kind of started going on, on that journey. Uh, I'm old enough to remember The Shining coming out. I remember the trailers and the adverts for it, and it was absolutely terrifying. Then weirdly, later in life, I actually got to go to Stanley Kubrick's house. Wow. Yeah, I went around and played FIFA with him. No, it was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a... was a name to that man. His assistant, uh, Tony Fruin, wrote a book about 2001, and the, the book launch was around Kubrick's house in St. Albans. So he, he's obviously long passed since then, and uh, it was amazing. His wife was there, and she's a painter, and there's a lot, lots, lots of her art around the world. And you could see the kind of the archives underneath there's sort of glass circles in the floor and you could see the kind of archives of all the stuff that he had. Wow. Really? Yeah, amazing. And then they're now all in uh, Elephant and Castle. All right, okay. In, um, yeah, there's a university there in Elephant and Castle where the archives have been sort of donated, where they live. And you can go there if you have a good reason. And you used to be able to go there and literally rifle through the archives and take out original screenplays and documents and just yeah yeah, you I did it was incredible and you can go there now but you're not allowed to do that anymore you get their umpalumpas to sort of bring the stuff out to you that you've requested (laughs) in advance which I did because I wrote 
last year, I think, I wrote a piece on Eyes Wide Shut, uh, which gave me an excuse to say that I, I, I'm researching a project on Eyes Wide Shut. Can I come and leaf through things? And you can actually look at genuine Stanley Kubrick screenplays that, that he's written on in pencil. And, you, I mean, if you're a fan, it's a real out-of-body experience to be able to do that. Wow, amazing. That's incredible. What, what brought you to Kubrick? Uh, well, there's a theme running through uh, the other three of us, apart from you, Ian, where, whereby we've all realised that Kubrick's a very grown-up filmmaker and we uh, it's not appropriate for children. So the first time that I, I, I remember watching <laughs> some Kubrick was my dad trying to make me watch 2001 when I was a kid. Uh, and I don't think I got past the monkeys. <laughs> trying, trying to make you watch it, like like um, like uh, Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork. <laughs> yeah, really, like prop my eyes open and everything. I thought that was a bit much, but still. Um, so that was when I was very young, and then uh, growing up as a film fan uh, and reading Empire, and then becoming a film student and just hearing loads about Kubrick. I just decided it was time to to make an effort. And I remember I dug out a ticket, which because I keep all my cinema tickets and terrible like that. On the 24th of May, 1994, I went to see 2001 uh, cinema. So that was my first proper viewing of it. And I walked into that screening, an uneducated ape, and I came out of it a glowing star child. It was absolutely <laughs> transcendental experience for me. I just couldn't believe what I'd seen. It was incredible. And so it just went on from there, really. I just decided that I needed to see everything that he'd made. And also, I'd been to his house, but in slightly less exclusive circumstances, because his wife holds a Christmas fair every year, although I don't suppose she'll be doing it this year. So I went there last year or, or the year before. Yeah, Childwickbury Manor. You can just stroll in and um, there's loads of arts and crafts stores. And she Hang was on, this, sorry, this is new information for me. You can just go to Kubrick's house? Yes. That's incredible. Uh, you can't walk into the house, but they've got the, you know, the kind of barn area, the servants' quarters, whatever it was, I'm not sure. There's an arts and crafts fair, you can buy stuff, and Christiane is usually doing some painting, and I, so I went to have a chat with her, and I bought a piece that she'd done about this. She'd painted this kind of alien chicken monster, which I just thought wow. was totally bonkers, so I, I bought it off her for 50 quid and had a little chat with her. And, told her wow. that I really loved Stanley's films. She was totally uninterested in what I thought about Stanley and his films. She was far more interested in her painting, which is absolutely fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think of him as one of the greats, how much do we think is that down to the work? Or how much do we think is it down to his process and his reputation and his perfectionism? Do you think that plays a lot into his, his greatness? Alex? I think it's inseparable. I mean, my obsession with Kubrick as I was saying before, grew out of wanting to know what, how, that, the, how The Shining was made and what goes into that. And what goes into that is absolute, exacting, uncompromising obsession. And that's what's so interesting about him. And, I mean, I will admit, I completely love Stanley Kubrick. I completely love what he does and where he's coming from. I don't, like, all out love all of his films, some of them don't connect with me half as much as the others do, but they're still just like incredible case studies. And, you know, a lot of people who are called Kubrickian today, some of them are because of the films that they make. But I think more than that, it's because of how they make their films. And, you know, there, there is a myth that's blown up around Stanley. And I think a lot of it is kind of, nonsense but a lot of it is because of how he approached and attacked things and i think whether you like the end product or not that process is on the screen you know these are untouchable pieces of work so that that's how i see it 
And what, what's our favourite examples of his perfectionism? I, I like palm trees in Canary Wolf for uh, Full Metal Jacket. It's just importing them. That's amazing, isn't it? What, what That's insane. You know, when I was wearing a shirt and he got somebody to measure the pavement in... Was it Greenwich Village or East Village? Yeah. East yeah, yeah. Village. And he got somebody to go around with a tape measure and measure all the pavements so that he could rebuild East Village in, in England, which is insane. I heard at, at the time that he, um, he got, I think his nephew, someone in New York, spent a year, I and mean, maybe it's an exaggeration, but rumour had it that someone spent a year photographing pretty much every door in Manhattan until he found one that he liked and I think I might have read this in the book I don't know if any of you have got the Napoleon book the making of the greatest film never made which Tashin put out years ago and it's an absolute whopper of a book and the one I had I did manage to get a freebie because I said I'll write something about it I think it was 400 pounds at the time and it actually had like I think it was like eight actual books inside one book like a magic trick and that chronicles all the research he did over years and years you know he wanted to make napoleon with jack nicholson at one point in the late 60s and 70s and i'm sure i recall that he got someone to get actual samples of the earth in waterloo so he could replicate it accurately <laughs> in the film it's amazing <laughs> and you have to love that yeah when i first started at empire there was a call came in from his office saying that he wanted every issue of Empire. And if you ever work on a magazine, that's really hard to collate every issue of Empire. Mm. I think he was thinking about casting Eyes Wide Shut and he was looking at young actors. So uh, we shipped over every issue, which was quite a mission, I think, to do that. You actually did it? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. What, what are you you would do it for Stanley Kubrick, yeah. absolutely. What are you going to do? Yeah. Because he never heard of Spotlight. Yeah, yeah exactly. Probably <laughs> <laughs> not. <laughs> and, you know, what, what do you think is great about the work? So in one, one thing I think about them, they are, to me, they are the, the equivalent of high literary fiction. They, they resonate on every level, cinematically, emotionally, intellectually. They do everything, these films. Yeah. They're very, like we are saying, they're extremely grown-up films and there's a lot going on in all of them, even the ones that aren't very good. But um, I just think I respect him and, and love his work because he's just got that unique vision, which he kind of cultivated when he was a photographer. And that became his unique vision, became an uncompromising vision. And eventually he just would only, you know, he was so desperate to get on screen what was in his head. And he just, he was kind of lucky enough and skillful enough to get to a stage where he didn't have any interference from studios really about how he was going to do that. And that's, you know, that's so rare. Um, yeah. But also, I think, you know, the fact that he tackles so many different genres, he, he made like a, a small handful of war films, but everything else, you know, horror, sci-fi, costume drama, comedy, it's all there. Also, he kind of, um, he kind of there's an intellectual thrill about his films, isn't there? They have intellectual rigour, don't they? Well, do you know, I was trying to think, I was trying to pin down what it is that makes him keep coming back to them, because you can, can't you? You keep going back to the films and just absorbing them and going over every minute detail. And I was thinking what it was that got me right from the start and then it has taken me through certainly the later, the later films. And we can get onto it later, but I think there are two very, very different Stanley Kubricks. There's basically everything from the mid-60s on, which is when he became the man, the myth, the god. And then everything else before was almost like a training ground, I think. But for me, it was like his films at their best throw up questions and ideas they, they're not didactic and they don't tell you things. They don't give you answers. They go, stew on this, deal with that. And, you know, what do you think about 
what do you think about that? And it's, you know, I think it's almost beyond existentialism. It's just like, let's, let's look at this existence that we've been plonked into and just throw up some ideas. And it's like, what does it mean that Jack Torrance is in that photo from the 1920s? What does it mean that he's always been the caretaker? But it's, for me, it's, it's not, I don't say what does it mean in, in terms of looking for the answer, because as far as I'm concerned, that's not the point. It's like, I don't think there are answers. You know, that room 237 doc about the making of The Shining, which is a myriad batshit theories, I think it's just all a load of rubbish. And it's fun to dissect it and say, oh, it's about this, or it's about the fake moon landings, or the Native Americans, or blah, 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 blah. I don't think Kubrick had the answers or would ever have admitted to. He's just like, like I said, he's just like, it's all food for thought and it challenges you. And I think he just wants to make us think more deeply and feel deeply and it's like it's almost I mean, this, this might be a half-hour comparison but it's like i don't care what that gold shine is in vincent vega's suitcase in pulp fiction yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like if there was an answer it would be shit there's no answer <laughs> that would make that more interesting than not knowing what's in it and i don't know i can't remember if i've ever seen that um 2000 is it 2010 the sequel yeah, yeah. is it peter hyams who did yeah. it is that right I, I can't remember if I've seen it or not, but I remember reading, someone said at the time, the problem is, is that that film gave us answers to some degree, and 2001 just gives us questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not looking for the answers. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard, and maybe it's, it's a stupid word to bring up on a podcast in which we're trying to articulate what it all is, but the greatest things about his films for me is that they're indefinable. And they're like a little bit, <laughs> they're, kind, they're kind of just out of reach a little bit. And that's why they're so magical. That's why you can never quite get to the bottom of them. And I think like he, he filleted out a lot of stuff from Stephen King's book of The Shining, for example, which does answer some of those questions, but he decided they didn't want to be answered. And the same with 2001, which he co-wrote with Arthur C. Clarke, the novel also mm. has quite a few answers in it, if you're curious enough. But it's much better that you don't have those answers because like you say it makes you go back and watch those films over and over and yeah. say your own interpretation and it's, it's hard to think of another director's body of work that does that to the same degree yeah yeah i think the only person i can think of who raises that same element of curiosity in their art is like it's a strange one but it's david byrne and talking heads like a lot of his music is very conceptual it raises a lot of questions and it, it encourages you to interrogate things it never comes to you with a definitive through line it's always conceptual it's always it's always asking you to demand more of what you're seeing. Yeah, and it's, I think, you know, maybe David Lynch, although I think that's a different sort of thing, but it's, it's quite telling that supposedly Stanley Kubrick at one point said that Eraserhead was his favourite film. That's what David Lynch heard and says. <laughs> and, um, I mean, some of the questions he's noodling with, though, they're about the kind of the dehumanisation of man and, and mm. loss of faith. What, what do we think these films are, the kind of subject matter he's kind of circling? Beth, what do you think these films are about? Macho bastards, invariably. <laughs> is, um, <laughs> I know it's true, that isn't it? There's, the, there's this real, isn't there? There's this real idea that, you know, he's champion of the rebels, of the, the rousers and the revolutionaries, but invariably they're awful human beings who, you know, we do struggle to empathise with. It's no surprise that he's, you know, every film he's released, I think, has received a, a mountain of controversy because of the subject matter and because of the people that he's chosen to tell these stories. And it's not that they're not without 
heroicism, you know, I see shadows of that in like Barry Lyndon when he becomes a father and Spartacus in a, in a very almost like boring and obvious way, I think. I think Spartacus is, is the kind of curveball in terms of the stories that he's telling. But invariably, macho, very kind of masculine, egotistical assholes. But I don't think he's championing them. Though. I no, think he's studying a, them. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. He's not necessarily these these people are never seen to be happy or successful in their in their fields. But that's you know those are the storytellers. Those are the people whose stories that we're following. And it's about as you say, it's it's about a lot of hope. A lot of times, you know, I've revisited some of these films since knowing that I was going to do this, and it's actually been really really hard. I think in this climate to see films that so you know, painstakingly present a loss of hope in humanity. And um, there's very little optimism to be found a lot of the time. Um, but that's that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to present to people was this idea of, of um, losing hope of, you know, trying to go off the beaten path and being beaten back onto it, basically. There is, there's loads about of, of um, flawed men. To- toxic masculinity is, is not a phrase that was really around when he, uh, he was making his films, but that's absolutely what's going on there. It's, it's just a load of men who've massively fucked up or are about to massively fuck up. And he's not really interested in heroes at all. There's maybe no. three heroes in the whole of Kubrick. I think you could you could say Davy Gordon, the boxer in Killer's Kiss, is... is more or less a hero. Colonel Dax is a hero in Paths of Glory and Spartacus is a hero. Yeah. And it's interesting that two of those are Kirk Douglas. But everybody else, all those other men are just awful. They're, they're thieves, paedophiles, <laughs> lunatics, politicians, <laughs> murderous computers. <laughs> it's so telling that you could take for Eyes Wide Shut one of the most wholesome, shiny-toothed action stars of the 90s, of the 80s and 90s, and turn him into one of the most slimy and unfaithful mm men with his real life wife he, he was so interested in in yeah as you say presenting the flaws in in these men and these men in power invariably as well well what do we think of his portrayal of women then who, who are the women who stand out in his canon i mean you're lucky if they've got the clothes on that's that's the sign of uh, <laughs> and not being not being bartered or used for currency or objectified or raped or <laughs> you know terrorized you know i'm starting <laughs> I'm starting to wonder who we've got left. Um, it's true. It's true. You, you have the sniper in Full Metal Jacket. She's pretty cool. Yeah, she's very cool. And it's Spartacus, you know, it's, it's quite thrilling to see the slaves be, I, I don't mean this, but it's quite thrilling to see the slaves be objectified. You know, you've got the women saying, you know, whatever modesty will allow in the heat. But, you know, there's very little cases where women... There's not many of them, are there? No, there's not very many. And, you know, also black people in Kubrick's films invariably come out in a, in a terrible way and again terrorised brutalised objectified but again as we say we're not that he's not setting out to glorify the people that are telling these stories no. um, and I, I do say confidently that I don't think uh, Shining or even An Eyes Wide Shut would necessarily be made today I don't think we'd have a situation where Wendy Duval would be losing her hair over playing a role in a, in a film anymore such as the conversation changed around consent and the way that film sets have changed but yeah invariably terrorized invariably sacrificed for the sake of a larger story always brilliantly written i will say but but invariably come out more of a victim Um, wendy is the hero of the shining though i i guess right i mean 
he's just an asshole yeah. for the whole film. And her, her story with Danny is, is, you know, the thread that does, you know, that's where I take, I take optimism and I take, yeah. you know, is that they are spared. Well, you know, but also, I mean, she puts up a really good fight. I mean, he tries to kill her numerous times and she tries to keep it together to hold that family together. But she gets him, you know, she, she fucks him up basically and gets the hell out of there and he gets stuck in a painting or a photo. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever the hell Alex mentioned that you could divide Kubrick's career into two parts there's the kind of the big 60s effort onwards that kind of define his style but what do we think of the earlier period the kind of is it fair to say that was just a training ground for him? He was very much learning on the job, wasn't he, I think. Are we all familiar with the shorts? So there's, there's The Day of the Fight, which is a, a documentary about a boxer, which is actually very good. And then the other two, uh, Flying Padre, which is a, a short film about a priest who gets about on a plane, which is incredibly boring. Amazing. <laughs> and the other one is, a, is a, a corporate video for a sailor's union, which is... The seafarers. That's right, and it's as boring as it sounds. There aren't even any scenes shot on sea. It's just all. It's, it's just really terrible. They are they are nice looking. I mean, look, they, the, the, the early ones, you know, fear and is it fear and desire? The first one, which he just he disowned, is like that yeah. student film. He didn't he try to have all copies destroyed? Yeah. Is I mean, in the last few years, someone actually officially released it and I'm sure he'd be spitting in his grave but um, those those films do look good he was an incredible photographer you know he was a photojournalist of sorts and you can see it he, there's an amazing use of light and shadows they're, they're nicely mounted as, as much as he could do with what he had at his disposal but they're kind of pulpy aren't they and they seem from a completely different era mm. and they just didn't have the vision that he was afforded after Spartacus. I think he said that he just wanted some directing experience and the story wasn't really a, that essential. I mean, he made a, a film noir about 10 years after anyone was interested in film noir. And, <laughs> you know, if that got criticised, he said, well, it's uh, the story's irrelevant. I just needed that directing experience. But you're right, that Killer's Kiss looks uh, absolutely beautiful. He shot it himself and it's, it's got mm. all of the tropes of film noir and it looks like a great film noir. It's just a bit out of date. Well, look, Spartacus is the dividing line, isn't it? Because I, uh, to be honest, I find it hard even considering that as a Kubrick film. Mm. He was brought on late. I mean, it already started shooting. You know, he replaced another director. He tried to wrestle control of it and to, to limited success. Like every day was a compromise from what I can gather. But this was him saying, all right, someone, this is what I can do with money. This is what I can actually do with a big cast. Here's my talent. It did really well. And then he went, right, thank you very much. I'm fucking off to England. I'm going to build a fortress and I'm going to make crazy films my way whenever I want and however I want. It's almost like he had to have the problems that he had to deal with on Spartacus to go and... It's like, it's like he becomes a Sith Lord after that film. You know, it's like, fuck this. And he's like burning it all down. And then he reinvents cinema from that point on. So that to me... What's it, was it Lolita? Is, is that the first one after Spartacus? Yeah. yeah. I think that. Is like Stanley Kubrick, Mark II, let's, yeah. let's fucking go. The, the best film of part one is The Killing, isn't it? Yeah. Which, which still feels very un-Kubrick in a way. It feels kind of documentary-esque in places, and it's kind of, this kind of structure it has, this weird non-linear structure. It doesn't feel like what he became, does it? No, but it's, it's, it's so well made for what it is. It's so tight yes. and compact, and there's a ghoulishness to it. And obviously... Uh, 
pretty obvious that Nolan took the masks for the heist at the beginning of Dark Knight. I guess it's a, <laughs> I guess it's a tribute to that. But I don't. I remember just yeah. the first time I saw the killing, just really, really enjoying how taut it was and how exciting it was. Even that, I think, is a bit of a genre exercise. There is this underlying oddness to it, I think. There's some stuff in there that, um, just going back to some of the themes that he dealt with, there's a lot in, in The Killing, which is maybe the first one really, that is about hubris and kind of uh, men trying to control a situation and just suddenly realising their cosmic insignificance and how the universe will stamp on their plans with a moment's yeah. notice. There's a lot of that going on in The Killing. I do. I, I love The Killing, but mm. Pass of Glory would be the one that I would, that I would choose over it. Yeah, that, well, that's an amazing film. Yeah. I've, I've got my timeline muddled up. I thought that was the best. Pass of Glory is just, just before Spartacus. It's between The Killing and Spartacus. Yeah, 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 yeah sure, right, yeah, yeah. I imagine it was Kirk Douglas who, who brought him onto Spartacus because of Pass of Glory, I guess. Yeah, I think he, at some point during Pass of Glory, he managed to get himself into a five-picture contract with Kirk Douglas, which he very quickly realised he didn't want to be in. One of the reasons that he agreed to direct Spartacus was to get himself out of that contract, uh, <laughs> which seems very odd to me to... You know, the one reason you're making a film with somebody is so that you never have to make any more films with them. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I'm quite sure that works. But I guess uh, Past of Glory is the first time you kind of see some of the, the stylistic tropes you expect from me, aren't they? Yeah. The, kind of stately tra- the stately tracking shot down the trench and stuff. That's, Gosh, that's yeah. the kind of thing you, you're beginning to see a style emerge there, aren't you? Yeah. Although, although conversely, it's like the people who say that he's a cold filmmaker who doesn't like human beings. You know, there is an argument to be made there sometimes, yeah. but not in that film. I mean, that is a really compassionate, warm film. And it's as sentimental. I mean, it is quite sentimental towards the end, but it's done with such verve and grit that it doesn't really feel that sentimental. But, you know, that's uh, it's like a traditional film that Stanley Kubrick has taken hostage. <laughs> I just don't agree with this notion that he's a, a cold or a cruel or a dehumanizing. I know we're saying about dehumanizing, yeah. but I think just because mm. he's showing dehumanization, that doesn't mean that he's a dehumanizing yeah. Yeah. director. I think that he takes great care to, as, as we've said, to, to show the curiosity and, and you know, in war, see those extremes of human emotion, to see those moral quandaries, to see the way that men can so quickly turn on each other. Mm. I mean, we talk about the tracking shot in Powers and Glory and you just see it on the faces of those men who are, you know, bookending the the trenches there. I think that that shot crystallizes that that first phase, as we're saying, so, so beautifully. It's an incredible shot. You know what? I was I was rewatching some of that sequence from Powers and Glory before and um you know, it brings to mind what Sam Mendes was doing with 1917. He has that amazing climactic trench sequence. And for all the tools and toys that Sam Mendes had at his disposal, the Pass of Glory trench scenes are every bit as engaging and enthralling <laughs> in their own way. You do feel like you're in there with them. It is a tour de force, isn't it? And it's astonishing that it was made when it was made. Yeah. And when we come to his later period, what, what do we consider to be the high watermarks. It's very difficult to me to look past 2001. Mm. That's the film, that's the centrepiece of the career to me. Why? I, I just think it's, I, it's done everything is visually is about 45 minutes of dialogue in that film. Yeah. And there's all these amazing wonders outside the windows and the characters just ignoring them. It's a very interesting idea to me. Mm. And um, I, again, it's just, it's intellectually, it's his biggest film, I think. Visually, it's his biggest film. And that seems to be the film that people define him by. Is that fair? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think personally, and and going by my personal tastes, I I'm drawn to other films in that era. Eyes Wide Shut to me ranked quite highly just because I am fascinated by it. Like I'm fascinated by how the performances unfurl in that piece. And I know that we have have touched on how he worked with actors, and I know that this was you know a very publicised film because of how he worked with Nicole Kidman and how he worked with Tom Cruise. And I'm just fascinated by how garish and unhinged it is at points. So in terms of personal tastes, I'm, I'm instantly drawn towards Wedding End as one of his more, you know, unpopular films. But in terms of, you know, the broad milestone of cinema, it's, yeah, it has to be a, a space odyssey. It, it just has to be. It's The Shining for me. It's just one of my lifelong obsessions. Like every single corner of that film and sound. And I, like I said, very, very quickly on, it wasn't a film. I watch it still often and it doesn't scare me. I'm just absolutely entranced by it. It's almost like a virtual reality experience or something. It's, you go into that hotel and you don't come out for what feels like a gloriously long time and you just live in it. And there's just, it's so thick with atmosphere and you can just tell the amount of work that went into it, but not in a way that is distracting from the experience itself. And I think that's what I love about him. Yeah. I'm with you in 2001 is, is my favorite Kubrick and probably my favorite film of all time. I just, I, I, I say that and then I, people say, well, why is that? And I just, I, I actually struggle to explain why it is, but there's, uh, it's just, it's not a film. It's a, it's a total immersion experience. If you're watching it in the right conditions, it's just incredible. Do you mean, what, by right conditions, do you mean on drugs? No, but um, <laughs> I've never tried that, but maybe I should. <laughs> I mean, like, on your phone, as opposed to at the IMAX, for example. But what, what, one thing 2001 throws up is his kind of brilliant use of existing music, isn't it? The yeah. way he, he can find counterpoint in Singing in the Rain in Clockwork Orange and the Mickey Mouse Club in Full Metal Jacket. That, that's one of his geniuses, isn't it? His ability to use music yeah. in existing music in... in clever ways like yes. if, they'd, if they'd invented pop videos in the time of classical music I don't think Strauss could have asked for a better video than <laughs> <laughs> yes but um, poor Alex North you oh. know <laughs> oh, yes yeah. do, do, do you want to explain that Alex what happened there yeah because I mean you say you're talking about his ingenious use of source music but he didn't set out to do that with that film. So Alex North um, was you know a very esteemed successful traditional orchestral composer yeah. and um, was hired to do 2001 and Kubrick I believe was using Strauss as temp music certainly uh, for the beginning yeah. and it was like can you make it sound like this but obviously don't make it sound like you're copying it and Alex North went sure yeah I'll do that he, so he did yeah. this whole score 2001 and then Kubrick decides it's just not as good as all the original stuff, is it? So, now the, the, and so I'm not using that at all. Rumour has it, and I'm sure most of you know the story, rumour has it that Alex North didn't discover this until he attended the yeah. premiere of the film and the film begins and it's Strauss. <laughs> and he's like <laughs> with his whole family and he's absolutely mortified. I've heard that that's bollocks and I'd like to think that as tyrannical as Stanley could supposedly have been. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he had, had if someone else had maybe been tasked with telling him, but, but anyway, and then it was sort of two halves, wasn't it? Because in um, Full Metal Jacket, he got one of his daughters to score it as yeah. well as using source music and yeah. 
The Shining, Wendy Carlos does two or three pieces, which are really iconic, but it's mostly fucking weird Penderecki stuff like that. (laughs) And you're like, is this even music? It's hard to differentiate between the sound design. Sorry to keep going on about The Shining, but you know, allow it. So it's hard to differentiate between the sound design and the score on some of that yeah. film because mm. it's also batty. Yeah. Well, one of the films we haven't touched on is uh, Dr. Strangelove. That kind of sticks out a bit in the canon, doesn't it? In terms of it's an out and out comedy in a way, if that's fair, maybe that's reductive, but what's our thing about Strangelove? I, I do not get on with Dr. Strangelove at all. I think the comedy is just really clunky. It's almost carry-on style. And if you're, if it's Kubrick comedy, I would much rather go for Lolita, which is just hilarious. But yeah. Strange Love is just... I, I like parts of it. I like Peter Sellers doing Captain Mandrake and the president. But as soon as Dr. Strangelove turns up, and he's only at the very end in a couple of scenes, but I just find that excruciating. That kind of level of slapstick is just doesn't belong in, in that film. Or <laughs> It's very much of the time, isn't it? It's, it's satire with a capital S. Yeah. I'm surprised, Neil, because he's got Ken Adams sets are beautiful. I so thought I, you yeah, love Ken no, Adams sets. I love the yeah. Ken Adams yeah. set. And the great thing about that is that in, in the context of Ken Adams' work on the Bond films, you see the war room as this kind of lair of madmen. That works totally. I love that. But it's just that, uh, I mean, I just feel like the story just kind of limps on and then just stops. And, and you're like, oh, thank God for <laughs> I, I, I find it grating, I have to say. I really like yeah, I like I. I find it strangely one of his more optimistic films because I just feel like to because it didn't start out as satire, did it? Um, yeah, it was a really it, serious novel, wasn't it? Yeah, grew into yeah. grew into satire, and I like the optimism of being able to take a, a literal apocalypse and turn it into or something that like you know ends with the end of the world is able to be satirical and I find watching it now as I did this year incredibly important and Uh I find it cathartic and I like when it came out that younger generations seemed a lot more drawn to it than older generations as well I found they they found some sort of catharsis in it as well architecturally I think it's it's impossibly beautiful I have a real (laughs) soft spot for uh, Peter Sellers also so I for, for every moment it's grating on you it's it's just linked straight to my funny bone so i'm i'm really warmed by it and i liked the relationship that he had with kubrick and that kubrick would just set up all the cameras around him that he could to hand and just allow him to breathe that's, and do what he did that's very interesting with kubrick that he, he has this reputation of as being a perfectionist and insisting on everything being exactly how he wants it to be but with peter sellers he just wound him up and let him go same with jack nicholson in the shining just let him be jack nicholson because yeah, I, I always think of i never think of kubrick as an actor's director no but there are so right. there are so many great performances across the range of the films but it's interesting isn't it because I he wasn't interested in realism they're not relatable performances. Yeah. They're something else. Like I say, they're, they're, a, they're just a notch up anything that smacks of real life because I think he's exploring ideas rather than trying to win people Oscars. And there's, I, I'm probably going to bastardise this story because I, I can't remember exactly. Ian, you might know. There, there was this, Steven Spielberg related this story of um, sitting down with him and Kubrick asked him who his favourite actors of all time were. And he listed off, you know, a bunch of really credible, realistic actors and performances. And Kubrick said, I think James Cagney was one of his yeah. favourite actors. And Spill was like, really? Why? Cause, and it was because he's, he was big, because he's bigger than life. 
And that's yeah. what you get in The Shining. And it's kind of almost what you get with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise doesn't seem like a real person in Eyes Wide Shut. No. No. I don't even know if he's supposed to be. No, he seems more like an amalgamation of uh, ideas, doesn't he, about fidelity and mm. and whatnot. But there is something very telling about, you know, the the rigmarole and the endurance that Cruz had to go through for that part, for him to receive basically no credit for it. And if anything, the opposite on reception, you know, it was, <laughs> it was brutalized, bless him, when he, you know, gave up 15 months of his life. I mean, it got, it got the Guinness record, didn't it? Longest continuous shoot was Eyes Wide Shut. He got yeah. ulcers yeah. from the stress of it. He didn't have <laughs> that same validation that he did from being this kind of golden boy. And then there was that torturous uh, element of the shoot where Nicole Kidman was locked away and he he wasn't allowed to know what she was doing. And that's when she was filming the, the segment with the Navy officer. Yeah. And Had he not read the just... script? <laughs> but he, um, you know, he, he received very little recognition for that part. And I think it's just because a lot of the time Kubrick was not concerned with the performance being the, the primary element of the film. Was, tell that to the, people who had to do 127 takes to get it right. <laughs> well, exactly. Which is why, you know, it's the most I felt sorry for Tom Cruise is after learning, you know, after that realisation. Well, he scratched, didn't Malcolm McDowell get one of his corneas scratched by that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. He's blinded, I, temporarily blinded. Was he? Yeah, I'm sh- like, again, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm sure I remember an interview with Malcolm McDowell talking about that and saying to Stanley, like, it's really killing me. I'm in absolute agony. I think my eye is scratched. And Kubrick, like, thought for a second and then went, okay, we'll get the camera to favour the other eye. You know, <laughs> that was what was <laughs> the important <laughs> That's cold, man, isn't it? That's cold. <laughs> yeah, Matt McDowell just, you know, is full of praise for Kubrick as a filmmaker, but I don't think he speaks kindly of his experience on that film. Yeah. I'm going to come to our, our favourite Kubrick moments in a, in a moment, but I wonder if we could talk about the Kubrick films we don't like. Neil, Neil's mentioned Dr. Strange stuff. Beth, what are the ones that don't, just don't work for you? I mean, it's, it's tricky to say what I... <laughs> Because I appreciate each and every single one of them. I appreciate yeah. and respect it. I think it was just, and it stays with me because it was it was my first dance with Kubrick and it was A Clockwork Orange. And I think that one, I just find a harder time justifying yeah. um, in terms of its, its messaging and, and its overall message to do with, you know, freedom of, of will and and um, this idea of being manipulated and controlled when the protagonist is as as far gone as Alex is. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> lost you. Yeah. I can't even look at you. Um, I, I think in respects to that, just occasionally I have, I have to draw a line. I did this when we were talking about Hitchcock in the past and I really had to draw a line with um, the birds and that was for it for different reasons completely. But occasionally I do just have to draw a line in the sand and, and the clock orange is, is in my top 10, but yeah. that was the one I, I just struggle with. I think. I, I've done a massive turnaround on Barry Lyndon, which I thought was a monumental bore when I first saw it. And I saw it at the BFI maybe last year or beginning of this year. It's terrific. Yeah, it's it's, so, so good, it's it? beautiful and funny. Yeah. Neil, Neil, do you love that one? I do love it. It's, um, again, like 2001, it's like sitting in an art gallery sometimes and looking at a load of Gainsborough's and Constables and Hogarth's. And uh, <laughs> I, just, I just quite kind of appreciate, it's almost a piss take how slow it is. 
it's like Kubrick is just drawing out these scenes just for, almost for a laugh and yeah. not even bothering to buy any lights, just getting a load of candles up. Um, to <laughs> That's light one the way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> That's developing That's a, a funny way of looking at it. <laughs> uh, That's developing a new lens from NASA, isn't it? Is uh, that what yeah, that is? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, to be fair. Um, no, I like it. There's a lot going on. There's, uh, Barry's walking through history, kind of collecting these father figures. And he's another, he's another awful, toxic male. I love Michael Horden's voiceover. It's so mm. droll and kind of delightful. And If you're a fan of British character actors, that's a, it's a, that's a brilliant film, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard Rosset is amazing in it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. Now, it's, what, what's the, the cubic film that doesn't work for you? Well, I say the, the one that's most interesting in, in the not working category for me is Eyes Wide Shut and that for many reasons but basically by the time that was due to come out I had been in the depth of my Kubrick obsession for a long time and he hadn't released a film since 1987 right this was 99 he tried to make other films you know Wartime Lies the uh, Uma Thurman Holocaust film which he abandoned and one or two others but you know he'd, he'd been wanting to make this one since the 60s right, since the early 60s, eyes wide shut. And finally it was like, okay, he's got the starriest A-lister couple in town. Society, culture was at a point where he could do what he want with a film that explored love and jealousy and sex and fidelity. And I remember being so underwhelmed by it to the, and I went and saw it again because I thought, well, I got that wrong. So I'll go and see it again. It just, didn't connect with me and I've seen it a few times because I do find it absolutely fascinating and like beautiful to watch and I love bits of it and some scenes and some moments I think the whole masked ball sequence which is what 15-20 minutes is just an incredible piece of work I love the music I love the performances I love the lighting I love the choreography but the film just doesn't connect with me on a human or emotional level at all. And I'm still trying to work it out. I watched it again a couple of times for the piece I did last year. And I just, I just can't get on with it. And the original novella is, I think, translates as dream story. So there is a theory that, you know, the whole film is a dream and it's supposed and it's dream logic. And is it even supposed to be real or feel real? I don't know. So it's an interesting case study, but you know, that's kind of academic. I really, really, really want to love that film. And it doesn't vibe with me. And also, I hate to say it because I love Tom Cruise and I love Nicole Kidman, but there's not a moment in that film where they feel like a real couple to me. And that kind of was the point of their casting. And it's a weird one. I mean, it's a really weird one. It feels, it feels like such a detached exploration of what it's doing, which is kind of ironic considering how intimate it should feel. So, you know, it's a film that does fascinate me and I will watch it again but it, and don't click with it on an instinctive level. But your, your, your feature was about a deep dive into the masked ball, wasn't it? What was the best thing you learned about it? Oh, well, do you know what? Everybody, I, I interviewed cast and crew and lots of, I think I've interviewed about 15 people. It was fascinating. And, and what they all said, which was really interesting and sort of went against everything I knew, is that he like, was a great collaborator. And any ideas could be thrown off the table. And he would change things on the day for all of his planning for everything that went into it, for the decades of planning, for all the choreography, he would change things and he would make decisions on the spot and he was very open. Maybe it came with age, I don't know. I, would other people have said the same thing? 
Jack Nicholson, I think, might have agreed with that. I don't know if Shelley Duvall would have done. He used to like throw out the scripts, didn't he? Like Jack Nicholson would notoriously get the scripts through and then just chuck them away and be like, well, what's the point? He's going to change it anyway. And he always did. <laughs> well, you see him on, this, on, the, on the amazing documentary that Vivian Kubrick made on the making of The Shining. You, Kubrick's there at lunch break typing new scenes. And that's what they said on, on Eyes Watch. He was all very, very collaborative. But however... On the flip side of the coin, there was one story that a couple of them told me that there was, there was one afternoon, I think it, it was part of the masked ball sequence, and there were hundreds of cast and crew there. There was a lot of money floating around. You know, they'd been making this nearly two years. And Kubrick comes in after lunch and goes, you know, one of the lights, one of the many lights was a bit off. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, one of the lights is off. Just go and find out what something feels wrong. Go and find out. And it just shut down for like an hour or two and people have to go investigate. And it turns out that one light out of like dozens was a stop out, right? A stop out. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. yeah, I knew it. Let's fix it. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, one thing that I desperately want to talk about, and this come up in our thread when we were discussing this is AI artificial intelligence. Where do we, do we feel that's a Kubrick work? Do we sense Kubrick's present in that? Because a lot of the, the things you think of Spielberg are Kubrick yeah. in that film. The end, the end of that film is Kubrick. It's all Kubrick. Spielberg. It's all Kubrick, isn't it? Like script-wise. Mostly, yeah. I think there's some tweaks that are Spielberg. But, okay. But, but, but the, the stuff you, you think would, wouldn't be Spielberg, like the flesh fair and, as I say, the end of the film, that's all Kubrick. Does it feel Kubrick to you or does it feel like this hybrid between the two filmmakers? It doesn't feel Kubrick to me, but I believe that's why he gave it to Spielberg to do. It was something that he was really, <clears throat> excuse me, it was something that he was really intrigued by, you know, and he explored that for years and years, this sort of Pinocchio sci-fi thing. But um, yeah. I think he knew that it didn't feel like him. He knew that it was warm and <laughs> sentimental and gave it to like the one guy that would do that the best, theoretically. I think that's exactly it. I think the heart, I'm using I quite say the heart that we see in there. Artificial intelligence is it's not something that either Kubrick would have wanted to achieve or, or would have achieved readily just because of what we associate with his work. Okay, let's have a couple of quick fire things. What's your favourite Kubrick pop culture reference? I will never not laugh at the shinning. The shinning will always make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Beth, what are you saying? Well, yeah, Treehouse of Horror and uh, Homer with the potato chips. But as I say, like in terms of in terms of references, I watched Trainspotting before I watched The Clockwork Orange. And I think the way that Boyle like borrows the framing from things like Clockwork Orange, to me, are, are really, really interesting and, and quite a nice little love letter in this um, quite stark and desolate film. Yeah, what are you saying? It's a total cliche to go back to The Simpsons, but is there one with a remote control, in, which should be the monolith? Or am I totally imagining that? If it isn't, there should be. That sounds quite... <laughs> Good, well done. Well, I've really proved myself there. Alex, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get really wanky and meta. Basically, in Lolita, which, as discussed, was Stanley Kubrick phase two, first film after Spartacus, there's a scene where he confronts Peter Sellers, they're playing table tennis. And he's going, James Mason's going, Quilty, are you Quilty? And he goes, no, I'm Spartacus. I'm going, well, you, you think I'm going to free the slaves or something? <laughs> and, and, and for me, you know, it was the film he made after Spartacus. And for me, that's like Kubrick going, Spartacus can get fucked. This is, but, you know, let's take the piss. Uh, that does remind me uh, of the 
record shop in a clockwork orange that has a copy of the 2001 soundtrack in it amazing amazing yeah. and the, who, who are the filmmakers we feel lean heavily on Kubrick I always think of Malik as very Kubrickian hmm. in terms of style in terms of his ambition I think it's Fincher isn't it I just think okay Fincher just the way he mounts his films the stillness of his camera a lot of the time, the themes that he's exploring. And I think in the same way that the later Kubrick films are, I think Fincher is a very fetishistic filmmaker. And also, obviously, notoriously a million takes sometimes. But I, I do feel like every different Fincher film is taking on is like a different task or a challenge he's tackling something else it's like get your head around this and i think that's what kubrick did but i think there's a similar i don't think fincher is trying to ape kubrick at all but i think there's a similar beautiful but detached aesthetic i feel yeah and there's also there's the rigor as well wasn't there the, yeah the takes and the number of takes and stuff Neil, what are you saying i see tons of kubrick in uh yorgos lanthimos most recent films the lobster and killing of a sacred deer and yes. uh favorite. favorite thank you yeah which, is, yeah, which is very very <laughs> um but that kind of uh, stately camera moves and framing and slightly surreal absurd stuff going on i find i don't think he's deliberately trying to be Kubrickian, but I think the influences are very clear there. I, I agree with you completely. I remember watching Killing of a Sacred Deer, because people say Kubrickian all the time, and I think a lot of the times it's nonsense. Mm. I remember watching that one and getting the same feeling, because it's such a dark comedy. Children are being tortured, and you think, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's so mad. Yeah. And there's this sort of supernatural element that I don't think is ever explained, and just leaves you hanging and you feel uncomfortable at the same and it goes to awful places but at the same time you feel like there's a, a darker force and there's the camera has a sort of godlike view of yeah, things it's very it? clean yeah. and clinical isn't it yeah i love i yeah. love killing of a sacred deer it's really horrible but the, are there filmmakers for you who remind you of kubrick is there something in Paul Thomas Anderson? Is there something Kubricky in Paul Thomas Anderson? Well, he visited Iceberg Church, didn't he? And, and that's how mm. Tom Cruise was cast in Magnolia, in my favourite Tom Cruise role in, in Magnolia, yeah. as this <laughs> awful sex therapist. So there's, there's definitely, if we're leaning into this kind of detached beauty and these very grand frames and, and this stunning architecture than certainly PTA. Um, Jane Campion, I think, of for some reason a little bit in, in that respect also, yeah. and the sexiness of it all as well. I, I think it's worth noting everyone in, in Kubrick films are just, they seem, apart from like maybe The Shining, everyone's just poised for sex at any second. Like they're just constantly, wait, like I just feel like Every, every one of his films is, is so sexually judged. It's outrageous, um, including Hal in The <laughs> Space Odyssey, um, <laughs> who, of course, was Pierce Brosnan in The Simpsons, which is another of my favourite podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely now you say it, Paul Thomas Anderson, Boyle um, also. And yeah, just a, just a, a hint in, in Jane Campion. And then obviously we've touched on David Lynch as well. I think there's something, and, and obviously this is the case with Lanthimos, this really grody, gauche, grotesque kind of examination of personality. I think you can definitely mm. see, see echoes of that. Cool. Okay. And finally, if we, if we were going to pick one moment to stand for his career, what would we pick? I'd go very obvious and go for the, the match cut between the bone and the spaceship, just because it's big ideas done visually. And to me, that's what he does. 
Neil, what would you say? If you're going to pick a moment to stand for Kubrick, what would you pick? Yeah, similarly, uh, I mean, I could pick the whole of 2001, but to echo what you're saying, I love the top shot of the maze model in The Shining, which gradually becomes a real shot of where you, you know, he's, Jack Nicholson is looking down on the maze. You, then you cut to a shot from the top of the maze. You think you're looking at the model. And then as it gets closer and you realize you're looking at the real thing and there's mm. um, Wendy and Danny running around the middle. I think that's incredible. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I feel like I've tried, I, I've read books or I've read things where I've seen how that's done, but I always kind of skip over it because I don't think I want to know. Yeah. Uh, I'll go with, I, I'm going to go actually with Fear and Desire when they overpower the soldiers behind enemy lines because I think, I mean, as much as we were saying, you know, phase one, that was kind of the sign of promise and the sign of things to come. I think yeah. the staging of that and the hands in the stew and the, you know, the the steady camera on the unthinking eyes of the people that they've just killed. I mean, that is just so telling of everything that is to come. And I think that's really thrilling to kind of come back look at you've picked you've picked a defining moment from the film he hates and disowned and and i'm sticking with it you know (laughs) sorry i'm I'm joking that's a deep cut (laughs) alex why don't you bring us home what are you saying i know i keep banging on about the shining but i I would pick uh, just a shot of danny torrance on his trike in those hallways because it does everything from they'd like it that is just kubrick playing with his toy box it's like sim- yeah. symmetrical perfection, beautifully mounted, everything exactly where it should be, but also just this sense of existential dread. <laughs> I also love this, this, the sound in those scenes are amazing. When it goes from carpet to floor. Yeah, amazing. It's a brilliant piece of sound. It's just, there's nothing else oh. like it. Well, guys, that's great. I think that's, that's enough cogitation. Let's go away and vote. All right. Okay, guys, I'm back with the top 10, our definitive top 10. Let's go through this. Number 10 is The Killing. That feels about right to me. That's a good shout. Sure. Yeah. Number nine, Lolita. Oh, I would have put both of these a bit higher, but okay. I, I did put... I, Lolita was my six and Killing was seven. Okay. So number eight is Barry Lyndon. I had that as nine. Oh, I think this one's quite high. Eyes wide shut. I'm really surprised this is as high as... I mean, it was high for me, but I... Yeah, um, this is seven. Yeah. Good, good uh, for them. I put that higher. I went, I put eyes wide shut at five. I quite yeah, like I it. did. There we go. That's us. Okay. That's me and Neil. <laughs> Number six, Strange Love. Again, well, I think we're getting this right. Amazingly, <laughs> <just> turning up <laughs> right. <laughs> That feels about right to me. Neil's disagreeing. It's number 11 in my top 10. (laughs) (laughs) Your one is up to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Then again, this might might be a tad high. Four Metal Jacket. That was high for me. I really, really, really like this film. Don't you think it's a film of two halves? The first half is brilliant. very much so. And the the second half is okay. I I just think it, it just really does draw on despair in a very, very open way and kind of banishes hope. And, and it's the most empathetic that I felt for his characters as well, uh, aside from The Shining. So that's why, why it means a lot to me. I think you're right though, Ian, that's the, the, that first 45 minutes is just laser focused, brilliant Kubrick absurdity. Yeah. It's just, a, a, on, you can't tear your eyes off it. And then the second part, it just feels like it loses focus for me and gets a bit messy. Yeah, I, do you know what, that's controversial. I put it as my number three because of the first half. Mm. I love the first half of that film. The first half of that film is as good as it gets with Kubrick. The second half is good, but, you know, it was coming off the back of Apocalypse Now and Platoon and whatever. And the first half was like, we haven't seen that done before. 
like that. You know, Vincent D'Onofrio is as amazing as Jan Nicholson is in The Shining. In it's his first film, Vincent D'Onofrio's first film. Fucking brilliant. I can't, I'm haunted by that shot of him just sort of looking up at the camera, you know, mm. towards the end yeah. of what goes on there. I don't want to say it, it's so terrible. But just the score for that stuff, the, the dread and the horror of that heart. And, that, and then we talk about dehumanization. And it's coupled with the absolute balls out comedy, you know, of the, just the endless insults and the barrage of shit that they're given. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the first half of that film. And then, yeah, it's, it's like, we're going to dehumanize them and then we're going to send them to war. But the first half of that film is so strong to me that, um, do you know what? The, another film that does the same thing is Wally. The first 45 minutes of Wally. Yeah. Absolutely oh, sublime. That's yeah. actually double bill oh. right there. <laughs> yes. You know what? Give me, I'll watch the first half of Wally. And then I'll go into the first half of Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> end of end of the gunshot. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, no, it's absolutely a film of two halves. But that first half is so good; it sort of it, it brought it up for me. Oh, and with a film of status hound, do we need to talk about the Kubrick gaze? This is a kind of a motif that turns up a lot, doesn't it? People looking down, but looking up yeah. directly at the camera. There's one in Eyes Wide Shut, isn't there? Mm. One in Shining. Yeah, a clockwork. Many. Yeah. In, yeah. 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 I think Hal does one as well. It's kind of a... Well, what, Hal himself. Yeah, when, character, when, when, characters, <laughs> when characters are in free fall, they do that, don't they? It's something that happens in a Kubrick film. Yeah, it's true. It's very arresting. Okay. Uh, number four, Pass of Glory. That's good. I had that Ooh. as number four. That's my number three. There you go. Okay. Then top... Ian, you seem, Ian, you seem surprised about that one. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know why I'm surprised, because I had it up high as well. But it just... <laughs> <laughs> so we're into the top three now. Number three... Uh, Clockwork Orange. Interesting. It is. Look, for for all its horror and for as grisly and as nasty as it is, it's amazing. Yeah. It's an incredible piece of work. There's no other film like it. I mean, I don't watch it. I haven't seen it for years because it's fucking horrible. But that's not a criticism (laughs) for me. It's supposed to be horrible. Yeah. I think it's just incredibly complex. There's just so much going on in it about limits of state control and um, libertarianism and totalitarianism and, uh, and all the sexual violence stuff. There are so many different themes that you can pick out of that film and take to the bank yeah. in terms of analysis. It just goes on forever. Okay, so we're into the top yeah. two now. And the number two is 2001, A Space Odyssey. No! <laughs> yeah. Disgraceful decision. Disgraceful. How does this... Does that mean someone else who's not me also put The Shining as number one? Well, you're, How does it work? You're, assume, I, you're assuming The Shining's number one. <laughs> if it's not a top ten, I'm going to be a desire. We're going to go on a murder spree. I'm going to get my axe out. And number one is Killer's Kiss. No, it's The Shining. It's The Shining. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I guess because, I mean, some of us did the Hitchcock ranking and there's so many films to choose from that you get very disparate lists. But this... Our order's pretty similar, I think. It must be, because that, that looks pretty much like my list, that, that, aggregate, mm. that aggregated list. I mean, it, it's very difficult to pick between The Shining and 2001 as which is the better film, because they are very different films, although they share a lot of things. So yeah. it's, the whole thing is pointless. We shouldn't have even bothered. <laughs> really, we, we all know that AI is the best film, really. Now, <laughs> thank you so much for discussing Kubrick, and there'll be another ranking debate soon. But with that, I'd say thank you to New Alcott, Beth Webb, and Alex Godfrey. Thank you, folks. Thank you.